This is One Heat Minute. Drop of a hat, these guys will rock and roll. What's your name? Wayne Grove. Look like gangbangers working the local 7-Eleven. Robbery homicides take me. Give me all you got! Listen. Give me all you got! I do what I do best. I take scores. You do what you do best. I'm trying to stop guys like me. A podcast dedicated to all 170 minutes of Michael Mann's L.A. crime opus Heat, one minute at a time. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to One Heat Minute. I'm your host, Blake Howard, and joining me today is, look, if if you're listening to this when it is scheduled to drop, the 2nd of May 2018, welcome. Because September in 2017, my guest from KQED, which is NPR or PBS affiliate in the United States, the co-host of the Cooler podcast, a weekly pop culture podcast, and at Teacup in the Bay on Twitter, the lovely Carly Severn is joining me for the 148th minute of Michael Mann's 1995 crime opus Heat, literally two months under two months left for the entire project. So today as we record, which is significantly earlier than this point, I just have to say, welcome Carly, and thank you for being a person who took interest in heat and wrote all those many months ago now for people who are listening to this show, a lovely piece on One Heat Minute. Welcome to the show, Carly Severn. Thank you very much. Lovely to be here. And you've come so far, Blake. You've come so far. <laughs> oh my God. Uh, <laughs> The passage of time, when I look at this and I'm thinking 148 episodes, it's it's pretty crazy. It's pretty it's, crazy indeed. I, kinda, I don't want to dwell too deeply on what people we will be when this drops. Like, you know, we're here <laughs> in September 2018. I can't do that kind of imaginative exercise with myself. It's, no, it's free. No, May next year, I'll be a whole year older. Um, my birthday <laughs> is the 1st of May, so this will be dropping a day after my birthday. Happy birthday. Um, oh, thank you. Thank you. You're, you're <laughs> the first person that said it for next year. <laughs> so you've got, got to get it in early. You got know? to get it in early. But look, um, we are most certainly at the business end uh, of, of this film. And pretty much we are 18 minutes away from the finale. 18 minutes away from credits. Very, very, very close to the end of this and movie. And it all goes so fast. I don't know what kind of what kind of... Hitting publish on the final episode of this show, Carly, as close as we are to it, imagining what that is going to be like is a frightening prospect for me, particularly indeed. So I really don't know what the heck I'm going to do with that. So I mean, if you had to think of a word, I think it would be adrift. I think you will feel adrift. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God, that's scary. Um, so what I'm going to do right now... Carly knows the show, so do you guys. We are going to have a quick listen and watch of the minute at hand, two hours and 27 minutes on the original theatrical cut of Heat, um, if you're watching the Blu-ray. We're going to briefly watch it together now. We are... Neil McCauley is white-knuckling on his, uh, uh, on his uh, steering wheel as we speak. Um, he's with Edie. He's just gotten a call from Nate about the location of Wayne Grove. Does he go to the airport as he should on this new out or can he not help himself? We're going to find out in just a moment with Carly Severn. Have a listen. I got to take care of something. 
there time? There's time. There we are. Oh, it's it's such a good minute. <laughs> so good. It's it's uh the there's it's such a perfect moment for the split second decision too. So you see Neil at the beginning of the scene, sort of white knuckling on the steering wheel. It's only a couple of seconds, but De Niro does these amazing, almost like. Like he's 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 descending into madness. Is these sort of really drastically different facial expressions in the minute, and then he and then he makes the turn. It is incredible. I've often debated watching that kind of facial progression of his frame by frame because I feel like there's a movie in every frame. It is nuts. Like I I, I watched it super closely, and it's like the progression of emotion it, from. I swear he goes from like Riley amused to resigned. It's it's the blinks, it's the nods, like the jaw sets. It reminds me so much of kind of that analogous scene in Goodfellas where you watch his face, uh, De Niro's face, as he makes that decision to order the hit. And it's it's all played out in such, you know, in a, in a matter of seconds. And I don't know whether that's some, some kind of nod that man is doing here, but... I, I could watch this every day for the rest of my life. <laughs> this is that one progression. So before we go into the progression, which literally only takes six seconds, I'm just sort of watching it here. I'm gonna, I'm That's gonna. Sh- it's it's six seconds. So we're we're gonna just watch it silently as we review it. But Carly, you obviously reached out to me all that to all. You know, now we're recording. It's September 20, uh, 2018. Um, you reached out to me because Heat is one of your favorite all-time films. So, you know, t- tell me, tell me, and and because we've already had a, a lengthy discussion, but tell the listeners of One Heat Minute like about your journey with Heat because this deeply fascinates me as what is usually associated as a very macho and a movie full of machismo, classic gangster, you know, um, cat and mouse chase game. So whenever I find awesome ladies who like this film and like Michael Mann, I'm fascinated. So please talk to me. Oh, I would like to say I'm surprised at that observation, but I too have never met another woman or someone who identifies as a woman who loves heat. So <laughs> there is that machismo going on. And I should note that like Neil McCauley, I do reside, well, I am from the Bay Area. Well, I live here now, but yes. um, it took me moving to San Francisco uh, seven years ago. I'm, I'm English originally, obviously, as you can hear, but um, it took me moving to San Francisco to pick up on that throwaway line from earlier in the movie where he tells Edie that he's from the Bay the Area. And I was like, yes, so am I, kind of. <laughs> but it's it's funny because, yeah, I, I saw, uh, Blake, I saw your podcast listed uh, somewhere online. And I thought, what kind of madman has made this podcast? <laughs> must listen. Um, and in addition to doing a bunch of things for KQED in san francisco which is the npr and 
PBS affiliate, as you said, one of the things I do is co-host the Cooler podcast, which is about pop culture. It's a weekly podcast. Um, one of the things I do is is write uh, about pop culture and in particular film. And uh, to be honest, I'd wanted to write about heat for a very long time. So when I <laughs> some crazy guy in Australia was doing a minute by minute podcast about heat. I, I had to kind of know what was going on in your brain. And yeah, like I've had like a lifetime relationship with this movie. And it was funny because before we spoke for the uh, for the article I eventually wrote about you, which folks can find on KQED's website, um, I was kind of cast back to thinking about my kind of love affair with this movie. And it does go back to like my teenage bedroom. I was gifted one of those gigantic uh, Trinitron TVs with a VHS built in, which oh, at the time amazing, was like amazing, amazing, amazing. In um, primarily in North Yorkshire in in England, and this was like decadent luxury for the time. You know, having this gigantic bit of kit, which was massive, <laughs> and I had I had the VHS of Heat, and I just wore it out. And it's funny because. I, I feel you. My- I feel you. I, I, VHS was my uh, weapon of choice for heat when I first saw it. And I certainly, wore, I think I wore through several, several of them. But it's funny because I was thinking a lot as well because there's the stuff I was thinking about. Most of the people I know that love this movie, like me and you, I believe, Blake, first encountered it as a teenager. And I think there is something about yeah. this movie and in particular Michael Mann movies in general that really appeal to the, the teenage kind of psyche. And I do not mean to sound flippant or derogatory uh, <laughs> when I say that. I mean, the kind of man was my gateway into into movies, basically. I, I think that, you know, Manhunter and Last of the Mohicans were some other movies that I just connected with on this this level as a teenager because the melancholy in those movies is just off the charts and I think that's why I loved Heat the first time I saw it because here was an action movie with all of the kind of sensory pleasures that I I was wanting that also had this deep well of loneliness in it and who else but teenagers knows about (laughs) loneliness deep pining deep pining (laughs) romance tragedy um these are all words that have been said about this you know this opus you know and it's 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 that yearning it's it's loss, it's the inevitability of death, and when we're all going through our emo phase, Michael Mann is our champion. But look, I've had many great discussions with different folks who, um, not just in their teenage years, but I think teenage is so important just for everything, right? It happens with music, it's that undeniable thing, like some of your favourite albums that you have when you're a teenager, they just sort of stick with you and have resonance for your entire life. There's an important formative years time, and I think, you know, sometimes it's... um, you know, it's 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 weird how we all go through those things, but I think it's important. And I don't think it's anything to discount. I think the things that you're not ashamed of saying you love deeply from when you're a teenager are the things that actually have staying power. Because if you can grow with them, then I think they, that, that sure. they're huge. And they're you as well. You know, like I look back and like I see, not to sound too highfalutin, but because of that intense, like love affair I developed with it as a teen and like all your love affairs are intense as a teen right (laughs) everyone people movies music you fall hard for stuff and I look back and I kind of see myself written 
all over this movie. Like I remember that like I was so entranced by actually the minute before the minute we just watched where Edian and Neil enter that tunnel and suddenly, you know, there's that swelling of the Gonfold score and then you get like everything bleaches out, right? And that is just, and they're so far away from each other as well. They're on other sides, they're opposite ends of that car, but they might as well be in separate universes because of how hugely they are separated. And that continues. That con- yes, that's what it feels like. <laughs> that continues in that in in this minute too. It, it's really it's really strange. Is you see, I'm just going to um, so we can look at it together. I'm just going to uh, as we're talking. But there's this, you know, in this couple of seconds that you watch. So the kicking off of our minute. There's this one second in. There's this kind of left facing glance. This sort of this sort of maddening smile. Then it kind of almost is like this deep emotion, this passion that's like you want to, your heart's almost breaking. What am I going to do? We get the third second in, it goes back to this sort of like uh, intense and then it just like flips and you watch the transition of his face between like the fourth and fifth second and it's just determination and that's when he's about to make the decision to turn the car. And then the 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 contrast with Edie's face and Amy Brenneman's got this, you know, beautiful, classic, beautiful mm-hmm. face. Um, she reminds me so much of Madeline Stowe and in, in Mohicans, yes, actually. I only time. realized that watching it, like, for the umpteenth time, uh, I was like, oh, they're, they're cut from the same cloth. And also another little man throwaway line in that balcony scene, her family's from Appalachia, which is exactly where Madeline Stowe's family would have settled after Last of the Mohicans. So it's one of those, like, <laughs> this is the man underhanded, you know, where Tarantino has, you know, certain cues that connect yeah, his yeah. movies, have that interconnection. Man is sort of doing it in a way subtler way in heat. But yeah, you're totally right. But she's just fine. She's happy. She's passive. A phone call in her world in this moment does not signal does not signal what it signals for Neil. And then as soon as it's, you know, it's nine seconds into the minute, he drastically turns the car, bang, takes it through. And now oh. she's the one who's panicked. He's the one who's focused and intense. She's going through all those same emotions he was just going through, but it's inverse. And there, there they are heading back into LA, like back being drawn back into the, into the lights, into the vista. Well, talking of the lights, it's funny because watching it uh, so deeply for for this minute to talk about it, it struck me. You know, the look of this scene, that car could be a space shuttle. Yes. It could be like a deep sea diving pod. <laughs> yes. It's like this, it is this kind of little bubble in this sea of lights that look to me like space or the ocean. And it's so cold and it's so lonely. And yes. it just echoes that loneliness in the car. And and you get it all at a glance. It tells you all you need to know. And it's, yeah, it never gets old. <laughs> it never gets old. And what's so even more tragic is as they head into the lights, you know, the same iridescent algae he's seeking out in this movie that he says like three times. The One of the worst words to ever get Robert De Niro's to say, by the way. It's a tough word in his tough guy accent to say iridescent algae. <laughs> um, and so they, they move in and you see this, you know, the sprawl, you see the lights. And then, as you said, this pod, you know, as you get into sort of 41, 42, 43 seconds of the minute and he parks the car... 
you know, she's, you know, she's left in the life preserver. He's gone. You know, mm. if, he, if she's in a pod, he is now heading out to space. Leave the engine of the spaceship running. It's all good. And she's just... Oh, and can I just mention how perfectly that music is timed to, to coincide with the swerve as well? It's the most graceful, like, golden soul <laughs> swerve in the world. I think that yeah. should be in uh, any racing events. If you're looking for a new nickname of a, a really great swerve, I think the Golden Thor <laughs> swerve is is what we should call it. That's that's perfect. I'm taking a it note of that like a, one. A lethal rum drink or something. <laughs> <laughs> the Golden Thor swerve is is exactly what this minute should be called. That's its new nickname. I'll take two. Um, but yeah, I, I'm so. Uh, I love when you really unpack. Um, you unpack the silence of the performers because I love so much of this movie, even though there's a lot of, there's a lot of script is there's so much about character in gesture and facial expressions um, and the, and the inferences to the landscape and the lights that then sort of reflect back on the characters emoting that doesn't have to really happen in dialogue. And in this sequence, um, you know, He's like, I'm stopping because she has to ask a question because she's shocked. But it's the only piece of dialogue that we see. And the actual time that we're focusing and dedicating to their faces as, as, as these two characters is short, but it just, like, explodes. Like, that nine seconds. De Niro does more with his face in that nine seconds than I think most, most actors do in their career. Like, just the command of his face and that opening, that anguish, really, you know, synthesizing all those feelings and thoughts and angst that are there, and then, bang, he makes the decision to turn the car. It's just so, so, so sublime. It made a lot of sense, actually, listening to Michael Mann's commentary when he was talking about how him and Bob, that is Robert De Niro, Bob. reshot How cool this. would it be, sorry, Carly, if you knew Bob De Niro I know, and like you could call him Bob? Bob. <laughs> you know, Bob. Sorry? Like, yeah. I should be so lucky. Too. I should be so but lucky too. Yeah, <laughs> that they just reshot this endlessly hmm. to get it exactly right. Um, I find that kind of comforting as well. The the level of kind of artistry that went into this, like this is no accident. You and me are watching this, being like, look at the emotions flit across his face, like you know, Michael Mann somewhere going like, yeah, duh, <laughs> that's duh. what we want. Yeah, that's exactly. And I think that's what's even more rewarding in this. It's that when you're watching it and you start unpacking it and people are like, oh, surely that would be an accident. And then the more that I watch this movie, I'm like, it wasn't an accident. They did 40 takes. It was, they did 40 takes to make sure that they had that exact, the, uh, you know, that exact emotional crescendo on expressions. And then like whatever his face was going to be with that resolute, I've now made the decision. It needed to go through about four different emotional phases before it hit what it was going to do and have, Nine seconds to do it. Incredible. Well, to me, it's so interesting that Michael Mann is not kind of up there in the great pantheon of perfectionist directors. You know, you think of those guys and you think Kubrick. Um, you think endless takes that that feel kind of torturous for actors. And it's. I think it kind of speaks to this general snobbery around the action genre that there's this idea that it's not hard to do, it's not hard to make a good one, you just bang it out, and I think nothing could be further from the truth, especially where it comes to Michael Mann's action movies. And they are action movies, they're thrillers. Um, but there is kind of such derision around that genre, and 
that's why I love, you know, there's some great um, writing in, uh, you know, the AV Club's website. They have a series called A History of Violence, which, uh, it, you know, anatomizes thrillers and action movies. Oh, yes. deadly seriously, sincerely. And that's just, I could read those all day. It's, you know, man does not have this reputation as the guy that makes Robert De Niro do 40 takes. And it looks effortless. Um, but, but nothing think- is... I think there's two things, though, what I've learned in this podcast so far is one is, you know, researching man earlier, the fact that he came from television at the time that he came from television was usually cause for derision and kept people, even if they were great filmmakers, at like this second class citizen, second tier for a much longer time. Because if you came out of television, you weren't a pure cinema director. There was there was always something quite perverse. And even other filmmakers have spoken to like Bill Duke on the podcast. Mm. Um, you know, television teaches you great lessons about how to stay on budget, how to get shots, how to... Um, how to turn around edits, how to be, you know, um, how to be efficient and fastidious at the same time as operating in a budget. And so all those things are good, great lessons that some, you know, famously like Coppola with Apocalypse Now and things like that completely ignores those lessons. So we get, we get those <laughs> lovely, those lovely moments. But um, one of the things that I really think as well is it's just taken a long time because Michael Mann's not the guy who, I think every filmmaker when they go in, they have a reputation and Michael Mann's so obsessive and hyper obsessive and, and particular, I think none of his cast can really complain. But when you get someone like, I don't know, David Fincher, you know, famously torturing Robert Downey Jr. to do millions of takes for Zodiac or, you know, Kubrick, Kubrick takes it to an extreme because he's like, I want a hundred takes, not 40. Um, and, and someone like David Fincher, he wants like a hundred takes of the way you put down your keys, which is just frustrating. And he won't let it be a stand in. It has to be your hand or something, you know? Like, so I think, I don't know. I think it must just be people know, you know, people know Michael Mann's work and they respect what, how good the actors look in the, in the work. And so they're like, okay, this Get is, on you, with know, it. you know, this is what he's going to want. You know, if I'm yeah. getting into a Michael Mann project, I know that A, I'm going to learn a new skill. B, I'm probably going to be able to crack a safe. And C, I'm, you know, <laughs> um, uh, you know, a lot of people are going to talk nicely about me. Usually, you know, that's pretty consistent. He's worked with like yeah. almost well, all of the good. biggest stars ever, you know, you know, the, the, uh, especially of his era, you know, the Day Lewis's and the DiCaprio, uh, you know, sorry, not only DiCaprio has escaped him, really. It's, you know, Johnny Depp and, uh, and, and Al Pacino and. Yeah. Tom Cruise and Will Smith, you know, they're all huge. Mm. It's it's really helpful to have you remind me that Man Got His Start in Television because there is that economy of of like a visual style and there's so little that's expressed through the dialogue here. And that's not to do down the dialogue because I actually like it in this scene. You and I, Blake, I have to say we disagree on the perfection of heat. I know that we do. I know that you think this movie is perfect and I do have slight issues with it. Um, and one of them is the dialogue. There's certain scenes where I'm just like, oh, no. Uh, <laughs> That's it. Uh, Look, I think one thing that I can say now is no movie is perfect. Like every movie, <laughs> every movie, um, every movie is is a challenge Like to say that it's perfect. But I love heat in spite of its imperfections i think its imperfections have gone so far around that now they are perfect to me like especially now if we're recording 148 episodes into this bad boy i love Mm. i love i love and adore every moment so far 
that I've recorded and I've seen new things or I've been thrilled with you know, different perspectives to look at it. And I think that if you were measuring the power of a movie, I don't think it's ever about perfection. It's just like, is it affecting and interesting in every moment? And I think that for something like Heat, that's undeniable. Like you just, you just cotton me onto the car's look as like a space pod. I had never thought of that. I'd always thought of it as like almost like a prison or something like that for those two together. Um, it's, 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 like it should be, it should be the train that's on the tracks that you can't remove. But the fact that he can have control, um, he's going to go with his impulses as opposed to his better judgment at this stage of the film. But you know, you pointed out that beautiful moment there, right? In the that that doesn't need the doesn't need the words. It just needs the visuals. It's 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 yeah. every minute has that. Every minute has something completely striking. Even in a minute where you might not love the dialogue, there's something in the way that the scene is constructed, the colors, the spaces, the the performance. It's it's all it's all so dynamic. Watching this back, I kind of realized that we're talking about like visual economy, the light that they enter into in that in that tunnel in the minute before, it's like this bleaching, Mm. like like a light bath that like shocks De Niro into feeling something finally. And, you know, pairing that with Michael Mann's comments on the commentary about how him and Bob quote unquote wanted to like <laughs> convey this uncharacteristic rush of heady emotion which Neil does not normally do. Um, and I it took me watching it so many times to realize like the light signifies that. You know, when it's it's bleaching their faces out, they come out of those tunnel they come out of that tunnel as different people, or at least De Niro does, because he makes this really dumb decision that is so un Macaulay like and I don't know, this, it like kicks in this like death clock that, you know, like signs his death warrant. I, I find it quite kind of painful to watch each time because I can like hear the clock ticking like it's some Nolan film or something. <laughs> you know that we're on the countdown. I know 18 minutes later, I'm going to be watching that final frame. <laughs> I think the internal body clock of what me watching this movie now, it does that. But I think that Neil... There's so many moments in here where I both 100% agree with you that this is a another huge turning point. But what I think is so fascinating, I, I find there's like mounting moments where Neil McCauley's character makes bad decisions. And one of the first ones is when he knows that Vincent is on his tail. He makes a very calculating decision to keep going. And there's an amazing scene with Nate, John Voight's character, and he says, you know, in a really fraternal way, this is not a good decision. You know, this guy's on, you know, three marriages. Does that sound like you like staying home? He does that great line. Oh, and I thought about that line. That's so good. It's so good. Like, and what's amazing is it's not until the coffee shop scene until Neil almost is goaded into continuing. He's like, we're going to do this. And they have the coffee shop scene. He's definitely going to do it. And, I, I think this moment is just like another chance. After all of the chaos that's happened, he can't help himself. He has to tie off that loose end. He has to do vengeance. And so what I think is such a wonderful thing is that each of these are so unique turning points of their own right. But at the same time, when you look at them collectively as they mount, it is just a, like an artfully designed arc for this character. You can totally tell that when Art Linson brought that script to Robert De Niro that Michael Mann had written, 
you could tell why De Niro instantaneously signed on. He's like, yep, I'll do it. And I'll be Neil. Even though he knew that he was going to be the guy that was going to die at the end. Because the arc is just so juicy for him to sort of jump straight into. The dialogue here is is the thing that gets me. The Is there time? When Edie asks, is there time? And he says, there's time. And we know... Even there's no time. Time, there time. No time. <laughs> there is no time. There's never any time. His whole ethos is based on the idea that you don't have time. You don't have time. It's, it's all about the clock running out. So to make this... This decision, there's a certain kind of suicidal tendency to it. Every time I watch it... And he says it with a smile too, which is even more tragic, right? He knows. And every time I watch it, I think maybe he won't swerve. And then he does. (laughs) How many times have you watched and gone... I do that all the time in movies where you go, please don't. Don't do the thing that I know that you're going to do. I would just love an alternate universe where you don't do this thing right now. It's painful. There must be some like... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> meaningful, you know, ancient Greek word for it, but just that that knowledge that what they're about to do will set into motion this horrific turn of events. It's funny because I uh, I rewatched uh, the last I think half hour a couple of days ago, uh, in, you know, to chat with you on a plane. And I don't know about you, I always get super emotional on planes. I can watch any movie and I'll be sitting there, you know, with my glass of wine, not sure what time zone I'm in, and I'll be like, this is beautiful. Oh, this is I did that with this. I just thought, oh, Carly, you know, don't, don't, don't well up. You're next to a stranger and you're on a flight. This is embarrassing. But every time I think it's going to be different and it never is. And you've got the most tragic ending because it's at an airport and you're on a plane. So <laughs> your plane could very well have been flying over in, 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 in an alternate universe. Yeah, I, I um, uh, throughout this podcast, have not really watched Heat, especially at the time we're recording. I haven't watched the whole film. I'm on a half an hour rotation. And I feel mm. like it's like 15 minutes before the minute and 15 minutes after the minute that we're watching. Um, and right now, I, I, I can imagine um, I, it's going to be really difficult for me to keep doing that 15 minutes as soon as we get close to the end because the end gets me every time, every oh. single time. I think that's the, the power of this film is in the nexus of all the ideas and the philosophy just being simplified and, and pared down into like singular elements um and in a wonderful conversation that i have you know uh, much much earlier for those of you listening but recorded around the same time with sean burns who's a boston-based film critic a massive heat fan you know he talked about michael mann's movie starting as these massive crowds these huge you know into you know sprawling stories and then they often end very intimately and what I think well, is observation. what I think is so on point about that, and that's a you know that's a very Chris Nolan thing that he 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 tends to sort of uh, create a template with, um, and and even you know you look at James Bond Skyfall, which is so influenced by The Dark Knight, it does all those things. You know, starts out as this big sprawling spy thriller, and then ends in the intimacy of like four people standing in a dilapidated church. You know, uh, I think that this. This that that heat thing of just taking away elements to get down to what the essential core of it is, you know, these these doppelganger, these two halves of the coin, um, is just so unbelievable. And this is the this is the final descent to those moments. So it's um it's pretty powerful stuff. Mm, it's 
like kind of whittling away of everything that's extraneous. Yes, yes, that is the exact. That is the perfect way to describe that. Just all extraneous, anything that is not not needed to 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 say to say that most perfect. You know, clo- have to that most perfect closure. It's um that's that's what's continues to be striking. There's a, a beautiful metaphor that people use about editing, which is comparing it to sculpture, and that you're just kind of carving away anything that doesn't need to be there, and you're you're finding the, the sculpture within that perfect figure or whatever it is that yes. you're trying to to hew out of, of rock. And I keep kind of coming back to that metaphor with this film because, as you say, at the at the end of the day, it's just two people, and then it's one. Which is really <laughs> oh god, how tragic! Well, look, yeah, sorry. <laughs> uh, look, um, I, I, I can't. I don't know if I can. Um, I don't know if I can say too much more about that minute, Carly. We're so close. I know. In, I know. So yeah. Let's 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 track back. Let, let's track back. Getting... So what I'm going to do now? This is what I love to do with folks who are huge fans of Heat and who come on the show and I have a great time talking to. You. Firstly, thank you, Carly, for reaching out for your lovely words um, about heat. And also, I'm going to ask you to come back. So we're going to, like, this, you're going to have to come back to another minute that is sooner so people can hear from you earlier. Um, and so if people are listening to this in the future, this is the first minute that Carly recorded because I asked Carly specifically, what minute would you like to talk about? And this, these events, that, that amazing nine seconds of Neil McCauley wrestling with this decision and this sort of weird self-destruction um was what she chose so carly would you like to come back for another minute can i can i twist your arm to come on for one more minute un- along the journey i mean when you ask like that how can i say no <laughs> awesome awesome so carly's going to be back she's going to be back a little bit sooner we're going to get away from this ending because everything she's saying is so spot on and it's going to make me emotional thinking about getting to the end of this show carly severn thank you so much for being a part of one heat minute um at Teacup in the Bay is where you can find her on the Twitter sphere. That's probably the best place. KQED, which is an affiliate of NPR and PBS, and obviously the Cooler Podcast every week, and uh, a bunch of writing um, about pop culture um, and you know about this very podcast um, is up on KQED, so you can check that out. There'll be links on the website. Um, thank you again. Thank you for having me. What a fun conversation. Well, it, I say fun. I mean, we got quite tragic there. <laughs> got, got tragic, but we had fun being tragic. That's what we get. We get we're accessing our inner emos that love this movie as teenagers, right? Um, exactly. I'm just going to go and listen to a, the, this Mortal Coil if you don't mind. <laughs> we, need to, we need to just take a, a golden fall swerve back on track. Um, uh, Garth Franklin, thank you for our web design. Mr. Paul Davies, thank you for our awesome theme as always. And... Guys, thank you for listening. This has been an amazing journey. It continues to be more and more rewarding every day. Thank you for being a part of it. Thank you for your feedback. Um, If you really love the show, we'd love to hear from you. Rate, review, um, and you can email us. um, OneHeatMinute.com is the place for everything. We're on Spotify, you know, Stitcher, iTunes, all those podcasting um, apps that you can find. Um, And uh, if you want to get in touch with us, it's mail at OneHeatMinute.com. There isn't long to go at the time you're listening to this, to the show. So if you've got anything to say, you've got any feedback, or you've got anything at all for us, um, send it through Carly thank you so much and uh, thank you guys for listening again and we'll catch you on another episode of One Heat Minute just around the corner